What's up, friends? Welcome back. For those of you who are new here, Exit Point is a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most extreme athletes with the intention of extracting actionable advice and lessons that we can apply to our lives. If you've already been enjoying the podcast and would like to support our efforts, please consider subscribing on your favorite platform and leaving us a review. It really helps us out by bumping us up on the search engines. And if you're really fired up about what we're doing, you can buy us a coffee. There's a link in the description. We're extremely thankful for all your positive feedback and suggestions. You're the ones fueling our energy behind this project. Please keep it coming. In this episode, we speak with Jesse Hall. Jesse made his first base jump over 17 years ago, and the story behind it is pretty funny. He tells us all about it. Jesse was a professional big mountain skier from an early age and an extreme skiing champion. He's an aerialist, an ace of a wingsuit pilot, and one of the world's top ski base jumpers. Jesse pushes the limits of his sports while staying humble and keeping a confident approach to maximizing fun and holding true to his own boundaries. So with that, let's get Jesse on the track. Dude, Jesse, back in the day, I think you were the second person behind, um, yeah, you were the second person behind Dean Potter to teach me how to pack, uh, even yeah. when we didn't meet. That's awesome. <laughs> Dean, like he took the time and showed me and then I was like, okay, that was cool. I need to get like as much information about packing as possible. I don't remember where I was exposed to it, but you had this, was it a DVD or was it a VHS tape? It was a DVD. Close though. So I close. bought the DVD and yeah, I yeah. learned how to flat pack with clamps and did it like that for I think a couple of years before it was like, okay, it's time to ditch these clamps. This is stuff. This I, I just don't need this. But yeah. um but yeah, I you know, even now, like I don't do that much slider down jumping. I would probably revert back to that same pack job uh with clamps just because that's what I did during slider down. Um, so thank yeah. you, man. It's so easy to clean up like that. It's so easy for students. Um, yeah, I get that more than anything when I'm traveling around. I like everywhere I go, at least a few people are just like, you taught me how to pack. And it, sometimes it's 10 years ago. Sometimes it's last year because it's up on uh, Vimeo now um, for free. So it's just been... Oh, is it? Know, I sold maybe 350 oh, okay. DVDs back in the day and then I put it online. And then, um, yeah, I, I don't know how many people have check that video out it's funny it's crazy what's the method um just see um kind of i mean it's pretty basic i just stole like 10 different people's pack jobs that i liked you know it was like i did the same thing i wanted i wanted to see how everybody else was doing it and just stole everything i liked about it and um this it's like the classic lay it on its side everybody calls it flat packing but um but marty corrected me and he's like no that's still a pro pack it's still prom proper ram air orientation um you're just laying it on the side. He's like, if you want to see a true flat pack, it's really weird, but <laughs> and not symmetrical at all. Um, but yeah, just clamp it up on its side and tip it straight down. It's like I don't know. I I consider it just a very basic. It's like the most simple version of the pack job you can do. You know, the the least steps. You're not repeating anything. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's what I like about that method too. I just do every step once. Whereas like yeah. when I started, I learned on the Apex video. And it was an incredibly neat pack job, but we had to repeat like three or four times uh, several steps, uh, which, you know, for me, I was already a slow packer. Like it took me like a, an hour and a half to get a pack job in when I first learned. And just by cutting out the steps and, you know, spending a little bit more time on each one of them doing the method that you're talking about, like I can, I can pack in like 15 minutes comfortably now. Yeah. And if you're packing on tile and it's sliding around or hardwood or like a dog walks by and hits your lines, you can bring it all back together so easily in a fraction so of a second. Easily. You're back to perfect tension. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's the one. Well, cool. We'll post a link to that video so people can check it out. <laughs> right. So uh, I think so the, the big like controversy for me or for us like back at, in those days was like, do you do something to the nose or not? Do you do anything to the nose when you're uh, slider down packing? Um, so it's still just initially when I clamp it, I'll do three rolls to either side and just make it symmetrical and leave that center cell in the middle. And then, you know, I've gone back and forth between opening, spreading the nose out over the whole pack job after that first fold or just leaving it as is. And I honestly didn't notice any difference with, you know, hundreds of jumps both ways. 
Um, so it seems like kind of the less you mess with it, the better, you know, you have it so clean, like, um, people pay so much attention to all these little tiny folds and stuff. And then they end up putting their toggles on the wrong side and you're like, just <laughs> get the foundation, like make sure your lines are clear. Your toggles are stowed properly. They're not going to fly off. Like, fuck, then, who was um, that? The rest is just details. There was one, like one accident where a dude put his toggles, um, fuck, I can like struggling. Like a, a 90 and then grab the wrong toggle or grab the, you know, what he thought was the right toggle to turn away. It was just a 90. It was nothing. And then just wall strike. It ha- it's happened a couple times, actually. Well, Taylor Cole did this at Riverside. We got to talk to him about this uh, next time uh, he's on the podcast. But he uh, crossed his toggles. He was jumping the cliff with a beer helmet and I think no clothes <laughs> other than his boots. Oh and uh, <laughs> he opens up perfectly on heading and then he like grabs the toggles to get to the landing zone and <laughs> turns himself into a tree that like no one actually understood that there was a tree there until he hit it. They're like, oh, this is just a totally <laughs> clear area. But cross toggles right into that fucker. <laughs> oh my gosh. Jesus. <laughs> so what's life uh, like as a professional fun haver these days? Um, it's good. Uh, it's a good variety, man. Um, just, yeah, a little bit of the base courses, you know, here and there, taking people to Moab bridge courses kind of were in the, in the spring. And then, uh, a couple of Europe trips with a intro to big wall in Italy and then in Switzerland as well. It's kind of interesting to see like the differences of the locations and how, how, uh, people are, you know, exposed to those and how they react in each each location is it's different than going with a group of friends, you know, just when you're a little more responsible for those people, you're trying to analyze everything just a little bit more. Man, can you talk to us about intro to big wall? Yeah. <laughs> Cause like a lot are of people we, um... are getting into big wall and asking that question, like, how do I approach big wall? Um, so what does intro to big wall look like? Yeah. So, I mean, this, the big wall stuff is, it's a lot more important to have that skydiving background really dialed in, you know, jumping off the bridge is the best training you can do to jump small slider down cliffs, but all that type of training, you know, it's helpful, but the, the skydiving is so much more helpful on the big wall stuff to really know how to fly your body when you hit that wind, um, and really be aware of, of what's going on with your body at those higher speeds. Um, so basically, you know, finding the best, uh, the tallest cliff is ideal, I'd love to teach in Chirag. That's, you know, the one of the largest rock drops that's somewhat convenient to get to, you know, but the weather in Brento and Lauterbrunnen just is a little more conducive to getting more laps in potentially and uh, being able to plan a shorter trip and not get weathered out, you know, so um, they're kind of a second choice as far as the cliff selection, but there's still, you know, plenty of wall there to, uh, to go have a safe jump. Um, I mean, there's so many different aspects to it, but I got a question about tunnel flying then. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, a lot of people have proposed that like uh, low speed tunnel flying uh, is something that's like a really helpful skill for intro to big wall. And you're both a tunnel instructor and a big wall instructor. Like what's, uh, is there some uh, value to be gained, like getting your low airspeed skills done? I mean, low airspeed and high airspeed, man, just, just being able to fly your body in every orientation. I think that's, that's the big benefit of the low speed is you're doing a lot more um, transitions and you're kind of flying your body in those different angles, you know, whereas the high speed, you're kind of either in one position or the next, you're not flying between as much. I mean, you are, you have to be to not blow it, but um, you're spending more time in those in-between zones, which are similar to, to as you're picking up speed um, on those big cliffs and just feeling those little minute changes and being able to adjust your body without even thinking about, it. you know, it becomes second nature when you spend that much time in the wind tunnel in those little transition zones. Any uh, skills or drills that you'd recommend? I mean, all of it. Just it's, it's funny when you get in there. I thought I was going to do 10 hours and I just thought it was just going to be so much tunnel time. It's the most tunnel time anyone's ever done. And I realized it's such the tip of the iceberg, man. You got to, you got to get in there and just do as much as you can. And it's all beneficial. If you go do 15 minutes or you do 1500 hours, like it's all going to be helpful. There's no point where it's like wasteful and there's no point where it's not beneficial. That was the thing for me that, uh, when I was like, Oh my God, I did my first session. It was like 15 minutes and I was like, wow, I just spent so much money and I can't do anything. But then as I did a little bit more, 
I started to realize even though I wasn't shredding in the tunnel and I was getting humbled in every single session, like my relationship with the air totally changed. I could notice subtleties in my head position, like the way my shoulders were, I could feel the air in a different way. Uh, would you agree with me? Like, did, did you have a similar experience where like your relationship with the air changes the more time you spend in it? Absolutely. For sure. It's, it's funny, the things that you're stressed about at first and like, how am I going to pull this maneuver off or no, make this transition or work my way around the tunnel or avoid other people. And then the more time you get that stuff just starts to fade away and all that stuff just becomes second nature. And you're like, oh, I can't even, I can barely remember worrying about that, you know, um, when it seemed like such a big deal at the time. And it's just all just becomes, you know, part of your foundation. It's just buried in there. Was low speed, is that part of the culture in the tunnel in Utah? Cause it seems like it's mostly like a, a European thing or is that now in the U S as well? Yeah, you know, the the tunnel that we work with here in Salt Lake is a little bit smaller, so it's harder to stretch out and do some of those maneuvers, you know, but they're, those guys are extremely good at working with that space and getting you all the skill sets there. Uh, a lot of people come with just this uh, straight free fly skydive goal, and they're good at pushing that, you know, that's kind of what they're known for is getting you, you know, in that sit and that head down uh, as quickly as possible. And maybe you're not going to be the smoothest back flyer and those like slow speed layouts and stuff like that, you know, um, but they're also extremely good at working on that stuff. You know, you have Reese up there as a world champ and, and Dusty's a world champ and all those guys, um, Hamish freaking rip. It's crazy to, it's crazy to watch them. And I still, after 1500 hours in the wind, I'm watching them like, Oh my gosh, you know, I thought I was going to be at that level. Nowhere close, you know, it's wild. There's, <laughs> there's no catching up. Is there, there's no catching up. <laughs> <laughs> So you're taking people to um, Brento. I mean, I always think Brento is a better choice. Like Sherog, I think Sherog is actually where you and I met. Uh, you were there for my second season, and I only the weather was so bad for my first season there that like I, I had a couple. I did one. Um, yeah, you were there for my first wingsuit base jump, and I was like, didn't have anybody there helping me or anything like that, and I was like all super nervous. And I remember you were standing like behind me on the right and you were like, yeah, send it. And, uh, <laughs> That's awesome. you know, it was like, oh, I, I jumped off, probably went super head high, potato chipped all the way till I started to move a little bit. And then, you know, like flew a little bit to the right and then flew over to the landing area. And it was like, you know, probably one of the most life changing experiences of my life. That's awesome. Um, I did my first but, there as well. <laughs> yeah. Potato I mean, chipped the whole a, way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so uh the people that you're taking uh, those are all uh utah locals or is that um people that you skydive with or who are the the people yeah you mostly you know i haven't i've done all word of mouth with all my instructing and coaching i haven't really advertised at all it's just um friends of friends people i meet at the drop zone so it's all been pretty um localized utah colorado um just like keeping the group smaller um I think it's better for them. I think it's better for me. And so, yeah, and it's nice to be able to skydive with these people, see where they're at with their canopy skills, see how they're free flying, you know, um, know where they're truly at. Because you can talk to someone so much and you're only going to get part of the picture, you know, but being being able to jump with them is huge. What are some of the questions that you ask to get to know people right off the bat to see if uh, they're uh, ready to roll? I mean, you know, it's that classic like coaching. You kind of You kind of let them tell you. You throw some stuff out there and let them tell you where they're at rather than like, hey, can you do this or that? Um, let them start to paint the picture and it, it, it happens a lot quicker for you, you know, um, as far as their, their skill set. You can, you can talk about numbers all day and can you do this and how does that go? But uh, you can get a really good uh, idea of where someone's at when they just start talking about it. You see where they're nervous. You see where they're confident um, just through that conversation. For me, coaching people in uh, terminal, the scariest part for sure is their first wingsuit exit. Do you do anything on the ground or is there anything uh, like ground school wise that you do with people to uh, help them get a good start from, from the very first one? I mean, usually you're watching their tracking exits before that, you know, and you can kind of critique that and get a good idea of... Um, if they're going steep, if they're going flat, what their push is like, um, how comfortable they are on that edge uh, before you add that wingsuit, you know, you're always trying to add one variable at a time, right? So the more, the more steps you can take to get somewhere, the more you can kind of see where they're at and, um, 
and make sure you're setting them up for success for sure. Why don't we take it back to the beginning, like before base? You uh, you were a skier, right? You grew up in Colorado. Yeah, yeah, I grew up out near uh, Mile High Skydiving Center, um, skiing. I skied professionally for maybe 15 years, did terrain park stuff first, um, hitting the rails and half pipe and big uh, big terrain park jumps, doing flips and stuff like that, and then uh, transferred into more like the big mountain free ride competitions and that type of skiing, sending them off big 100-foot cliffs and stuff like that. So, um, Before we uh, jump farther than that, uh, dude, can I, can I step you into, uh, the terrain park? Um, man, it, it's a culture that I think, uh, needs to have more light shed on it, especially in its like current approach to like learning a new trick. Uh, and maybe you can compare and contrast that culture with like the culture of learning how to do, let's say a gainer in base jumping. Yeah, I mean, the, the repetition that you can get in the train park is insane, right? I don't know how many flips I would do a day, but every single run on a high-speed chairlift, you're doing five to ten jumps. Um, you know, you're doing 100 flips a day to just dial in what that feels like. And on the bigger jumps, the smaller jumps, speeding up the rotation, slowing it down, spotting the landing, the air awareness, um, adjusting to uh, things that you don't expect to happen, you know, just different conditions. Um so just that repetition is wild how many how many jumps you can do you know in a day yeah too and uh also the the progression in that arena is just like insane like you just said like just on the mountain there are different levels of terrain park just so that you can like work up to doing like this trick in the more extreme environment but like also there's like airbags and woodward and trampolines and like all this other stuff that like leads into before a kid even throws a backflip on snow he's thrown that same backflip like several hundred times in several different like arenas yeah that's pretty cool now i just used to like over rotate and knock the wind out of myself on the snow but <laughs> i know right <laughs> <laughs> me too nice. dude i came up in the go big or go home days and then like all of a sudden like i i, I was an instructor in vale uh, for a while and like they uh it's uh you know pre-ride re-ride free ride like that's the the motto on the mountain you know not go big or go home it's it's a totally different uh experience to learning how to like do something extreme <laughs> yeah it's pretty nice and even like the with the big mountain stuff as well you couldn't compete till you're 18 um and there, so there was no coaching no competitions and now they're you know they're learning how to mitigate risk and choose lines at such a young age when it wasn't even a thought in our mind you know we were just ripping through the trees jumping off cliffs and now you have like someone who's a ex-professional skier who had done that stuff like teaching these kids from the ground up you know when to go for it when to hold back how to how to assess everything and it's you know it's building way stronger smarter skiers that are doing you know way crazier stuff so it's pretty cool Anyway, sorry, I sidetracked you onto that one. Uh, you were telling us uh, a terrain park to Big Mountain, and then uh, you were uh, keeping going with like where Jesse found all the extreme sports. <laughs> that was a two-part question, though, and I'm interested in the second part, too, because comparing and contrasting, right? Because I think we're oh, not right. quite there with base yet, but do you see that sort of changing, you know, like people developing that air awareness, uh, you know, at Woodward or at the tramp park or whatever. Um, is there more established steps developing in base for, uh, well, directly through your students, for example, or is that how you're coaching people or. I think with the, with the wind tunnel and the, and utilizing the wind tunnel and utilizing skydiving quite a bit more, maybe not necessarily with the aerials, but just with the progression of the jumping, you know, we didn't really utilize that too much. I, I feel like I did everything backwards, man. I'm on, I skydive so much now and all the, you know, 1500 hours or whatever change in the wind tunnel and the jumps feel so much safer and more fun to me now. Um, because I have that skill set. So I think like people coming up, you know, we're trying to spread the word that, you know, do that stuff first and even, you know, incorporate it as much as you can, even if you're already jumping and it's going to make the whole thing better, uh, better and safer, more fun, you know, all the way around. So, um, as far as aerials, you know, I constantly, oh yeah. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. As far as aerials, say, we got to finish this far as far as aerials, you again. <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, we can go all different directions, man. There's there's so much. Um, 
every time I'm up at the bridge, you know, people are like, how do I do this? How do I do that? And I, I find myself constantly just trying to talk people out of trying to learn anything at the bridge. I'm like, me personally, I do a bunch of crazy flips. And I used to do a lot more. Um, and I talk about how I've, you know, done thousands of flips skiing. And then with even coming to base jumping with that background and that history of, of aerials, um, I didn't learn a single trick at the bridge. I learned everything on terminal walls or at KL Tower, something where you can actually grab some wind and stop the rotation, decide, be like, oh, yeah, I did that backflip in two seconds. I could spot where I was. You know, I could tell where my pilot shoot was. That would be a good trick for the bridge, you know, and then I'll do a bunch of them and then and then bring it to the bridge. And then something else, maybe like, oh, that was more of like a four-second trick. I don't really want to take that to the bridge. Can I speed it up a little bit or is it going to stay at a four-second trick? Um didn't learn a single aerial at the bridge and I, I try to push that on people, but uh, you know, people are excited to send it, so it's hard. People are excited to send it. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting <laughs> that people look at uh someone like you and go like that guy fucking sends it, right? And so like then they approach it from a different angle, thinking like sending it is the way to I don't know, be like you. <laughs> Yeah, that that brings up a whole different conversation of like how how strange social media is has influenced everything, you know, because when we started, it was like you you wouldn't jump something if there was a little bit of snow on the ground because you didn't want to leave footprints. And now it's like, how fast can I post this jump online, you know, and and I feel like I honestly had a part of, you know, all the social media stuff doing work with GoPro and I kind of have a mixed feeling about, you know, putting it out there so much and making it look so fun and, you know, um, versus just hiding it from the world, you know. So there's there's double-edged sword there for sure. Yeah, because like uh, as uh, Jacques Cousteau said, if one man for whatever reason has the ability to lead an extraordinary life, they have no reason or they have no right to keep it to themselves. You know, like if you're creating performance art out there or you're like exploring new terrain, like, dude, that's kind of selfish not to throw it out there for, you know, people to enjoy. And at the same token, like, man, if you spray all of this all the time, there's some pretty unsustainable and negative consequences that, that you know, come from it. Well, and there's so many people um, nowadays, like not just with jumping, but, you know, you a good camping site, a good climbing area, right? You start talking about it, all of a sudden it's not good anymore. So you can, right. you can overdo it, whatever it is. You know, I struggled a little bit with that um, over the last couple of years, uh, getting a lot of FOMO, you know, especially since I was spending a lot of time focused on building a family and didn't get to jump quite as much as I did before. And then when I started to ramp up again, you know, practicing more and more, I I got that urge to like okay I'm gonna like post a story of where I am or I, I'm gonna post my video and, and stuff like that and I started to feel and like this is really difficult to talk about without sounding like self righteous but literally I'm just talking about the way that I was feeling about it and it felt a little bit like I was trying to um, it started being more in my mind while I was like getting ready to jump the camera that I was going to put in my bag, this and that. And so I, I stopped posting completely and, uh, I just started again, like, you know, sharing some, some little stuff. And, um, I'm curious cause you've been in it for a really long time. And I know just from what you're saying now that you have some personal awareness about it. Do you have, uh, something that you follow that's established or is it sort of just like you kind of put a little bit of, or what, what is your process behind that? You know, it comes in waves with um, with how I'm feeling for sure. Sometimes I'm just super excited and I want to like show my friends, you know, because I feel that coming from you guys when I don't get to see you guys for very long and I see just your smiling faces on top of something. Um, I think more so I'm trying to do posts that are maybe just like, we're here we are camping out here, like, or here we are hiking together and not like check out how cool and extreme this flip is or how close I am to this tree. Um, try to, you know, bring it back to that, like, I don't know. That's that's the cake, you know, is being with your friends, the icing on tops, the cool jump. Uh, but maybe try to focus on that a little bit more, and it won't um, propel people towards trying to get such an epic shot of of the jump. You know, it might keep things a little bit safer, and and broaden that awareness to, to how special the rest of the situation is. I like that. But yeah, it comes in waves for sure. Can you speak a little bit about the uh, Kodak Courage? coming from, uh, you know, a realm where you 
literally worked for a camera company doing death-defying things. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's real. No matter how much you like want to pretend it's the, you don't realize that camera's there, you're watching it. And um, hopefully, hopefully you're, you know, in the right place when you're doing those things. Like when I was throwing all the aerials off little cliffs, you know, like slider down triple barrel rolls and exiting backwards and twisting and stuff like that. I was just hyper current with that stuff. You know, I was doing it all the time at the bridge. So when I was doing that stuff, I wanted to do it for me. I was super current with that stuff. And now like if a camera's out and I'm like, Hey, I could do that super cool trick I used to do. I'm like, ah, I haven't done that in a while. You know, I have to recognize that and back off and, and keep it to, you know, what's fun. Why am I here to enjoy this jump? You know, not for that epic shot. You know, a lot of people, say that uh it's no big deal because it's just a gopro it's so small like it's it's uh you know barely noticeable um but it sounds like what you're saying is that like just the camera rolling itself changes the mentality uh is can you speak a little bit more about that maybe like is it different if a camera is rolling at all no matter how big it is absolutely and then just even like i don't know trying to like one up the boys or you know there, it's 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 weird how that ego gets involved with just people being around versus a solo jump. You know, what would you do if you're there by yourself? You know, um, I had that experience skiing recently where it was the epic powder day, and I went out to the spot where we always jump, and usually there's a camera guy or a video or someone out there, and I ended up jumping the cliff more times than I would during a photo shoot, and I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. I actually like really freaking love jumping off this cliff and landing in super good snow. Nobody out there to even care, you know. Um, so that was kind of a, an interesting, cool feeling, but yeah, the, the kit and no matter how much you tell your students or anybody, your friends, you're like, you know, pretend the camera's not there, turn it on well before the jump, well after the jump, don't let it affect you. Um, not to throw this guy under the bus cause he's a good guy, but one of my students boosted off, uh, Brento, went into a tracking position, reached up, turned his camera on and then kept going. <laughs> And uh, <laughs> oh, what? No way! And he he nailed it. I thought he was flipping his visor down. I was like, no way. He's an open face. Like, it, but yeah, he totally kept everything one. straight. Nailed the camera on and kept going. And I was just like, okay, he's maybe he's not as nervous as I thought. But that just goes to show that that little seed is in the back of your head, like growing. No matter how much you tell yourself, I'm not going to pay attention to it. Um, you know, it's crazy. <laughs> Okay, I got one off of that about uh, the GoPro Bomb Squad because uh, I've seen a lot of people do you know the most reckless and dangerous shit on camera because they want to be at that level. They want to get noticed by you know the the marketing professionals. They like tag GoPro like in every single form that it can be in their you know description. Um, but I know from knowing you and Marshall and. Um, uh, um, oh God, Neil. Neil. Hammond. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Thank you. Um, that, uh, like, that's not how you guys started that team. So maybe, uh, you could speak a little bit about that and, uh, what it's like, uh, seeing people who tr want to try and get noticed that way. Yeah. That was a unique scenario because, um, it was more about the live demonstration jumps into, into Supercross, into NFL games. It was like stadium jumps, um, so it was, you know, this company trusting that we had the canopy skills to land in the middle of this large crowd, um, determine if the weather was good or not, you know, and um, and do it on time and make it look good. And, you know, a lot of the side stuff with GoPro was like flying down mountains in Norway and making that look cool. But like the big thing that set us apart from anyone who was just willing to give footage for a free camera uh, flying down a mountain was was the demo jumps, you know. So it was pretty cool to get that much time um we were actually using base canopies for 90% of that. We, um, we found that you could, you know, open a little bit lower, still above regulations, but, you know, bring it right down to the deck. And then you had a bigger flying billboard and then way easier to be accurate with that canopy. And cause we were crossing over from base jumping back to skydiving, not skydiving a ton besides the demos. So using that base canopy for everything was awesome. And then it ended up, you know, giving us so much, um, canopy time under those base canopies that I'm sure translated into saving us in other base jumping scenarios where we really understood those wings super well. You know, even I think when we started the team, I already had a thousand base jumps, but I got so much better at flying that canopy um, during that time. It was pretty cool. 
Also, you guys are all friends before that, like Neil Amundsen and uh, Marshall Miller. Like you guys are all Utah locals and, you know, at least came up in the game before GoPro together. Not like I think most people I've come across that are coming up in the game assume that like these teams are put together by, you know, some kind of corporate board looking at Instagram to see who has the most likes. Oh yeah, you know, we we built it. Um it was uh Neil's original idea. He came up with the name and he's like Marshall was epic paraglider, you know, not much skydiving or base jumping yet. And then um and Neil and I knew each other through that and we basically put it on a silver platter for GoPro. We're like, hey, we can do the paperwork for this, we can get the helicopter, we can do the insurance, we can do everything you guys need. You just need to tell us where to go, uh, where to jump and sign the check and we're gonna make it happen. And at the time, there's probably 10 people at GoPro. So we were directly talking to Nick Woodman and we're, you know, just being able to present that idea right to him there. He's like, this sounds awesome. You know, this is great. Uh, so they, by no means did they come to us or, you know, because they saw our cool footage. It was like, we went out there and built something and, and presented it to them, you know, and the, the timing was right for it. That's right. That's yeah. back in the day when you put like a triple A batteries in the back of the thing and the sun had, it was like a black spot in the sky, yeah. right? Yeah. You had to take Go the batteries back one. out too. Otherwise it would drain them while it wasn't even on. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, pretty sweet. I was involved with CrossFit at the time and Neil would come in. I think it was the CrossFit games number two. And he came in and landed uh, next to the crowd. Uh, and that was like the first time I met Neil. Uh, that was pretty cool. Um, but um, I wonder if we could uh, rewind a little bit too, because I think we got a little bit sidetracked when we were talking about your past. And I think that's pretty interesting is like you were in Colorado, you were a competitive skier in the park, you went for the big ride, free ride, stuff like that. When did you end up finding out about base jumping? Um, so I, I, yeah, I grew up next to Mile High and I was, since I was a little kid, I was watching canopies fly and land, you know, and I was like, well, obviously I'm doing that when I'm old enough. And so on my 18th birthday, I did my first jump. Um, and then started AFF a little while after and just, you know, it was just right there, you know, as a kid, you're like, you can fly parachutes. Of course I'm doing that for sure. Um, so that, that's what kicked off that. And looking back, you know, those guys, all the, you know, Kenyon and Pope and those guys were like, you have to have your riggers ticket and 500 jumps and we'll teach you. And I was like, I'm never going to have 500 skydives, not in a million years. Like, how am I going to do this? You know, um, and yeah, looking back, it was great advice from those guys, you know, that's solid, solid advice. And, uh, I should have taken it, but, um, I took a different backwards route for sure. I ended up, um, jumping with a guy, Brian Stokes, who was on that team ill vision. And he, you know, he was willing to mentor me with not as many skydives as I should have had because he watched me fly as my parachute and he was going to pay close attention to what I was doing and everything. And Marty from Asylum, uh, agreed to build gear as long as I was going to work with him and, right before the gear showed up, all of a sudden, Brian's off the radar, got married, moved to a different state. I don't even, I haven't heard from him since, you know, this is a long time ago and uh, just fully off the radar. So I had this base gear just show up. And at the time I skied for the same company as JT Holmes. And he's like, we're going to Switzerland um, for this magazine shoot. Bring your, bring your parachute. We're going to, we're going to get you your first jump. Let's make it a ski base. And I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> I don't fuck? think this. I was, I told, I told Marty, I was going to go to the bridge and, you know, build, you know, a few hundred jumps there before I did anything else and stick with Brian. Um, definitely, uh, definitely went a different direction. Uh, we ended up, uh, skiing off the back of this ski resort and there's a maybe 400 foot dam down there. He's like, this is going to be your first jump. Uh, we threw our skis, boots, poles off the dam. There's like three feet of fresh snow that they landed in. And then, uh, we sent it and he's like it's it's cool man you got a blackjack it has events so if you have a 180 you're just gonna slide down the dam to the snow like no big deal and i was like what <laughs> 180 i wasn't even thinking about that like so terrified but um it was awesome we landed grabbed our skis skied down to a bus stop back to the ski area and that was that was round one um Okay, wait, by. straight up. I got to ask. Wait, wait, <laughs> yeah. round one. Okay, so this is something that I've talked about with my like long to, oldest friend in the in the game, uh, Mike Nador. And before he was like a base jumper at all, he's a, a really legit free skier. Um, and uh, his, his like, 
he's always like asking like, dude, like, why do I need to go through all this other stuff? Like if I know how to fly the parachute and I'm way more comfortable hucking a huge ass cliff on skis than I am just like poised jumping off a bridge, then like, why would we not do it that way? Like I'll end up miles away from the cliff. I'll end up in an, like in a space where like I have almost all con- like total control. Like I could be hucking misties off of this damn thing. We're just doing a straight air and then I pull a parachute. That sounds simple as shit. Like, is he right? What's the deal? I had the same mentality for sure. And then um, I soon realized that ski base jumping is by far the most dangerous type of base jumping that exists anywhere across the board. <laughs> like without a doubt, <laughs> the wildest stuff happens every time you go like, Someone always has some wild close call, whether it's, you know, your skis getting near the deployment um, or just how you're how you um, make it down the in run and off the end of that jump. You know, the only thing comparable in my mind is kind of like a moto base. You know, you have all this speed and energy hauling ass at this jump and you have to exit this jump perfectly and then do everything after that perfectly to keep everything lined up, you know, um, and not have this giant object entangled in your deployment like there's so much anticipation and and build up before you hit that ramp, you know, like normally you're stepping off the bridge or jumping off a cliff. You're like, okay, keep your shoulders square, keep your hips square, get the pilot shoot out there. And, and even that's kind of a big deal to, you know, produce those on heading openings. And now you put all this speed and energy into this, like just getting to the jump and then after the jump, handling all that speed and energy. And then, you know, the entanglement factors are obviously wild, you know, people often don't even jump with like hooks on their hiking boots because it's too big of an entanglement and we have like ski boots and brakes and bindings and buckles and skis and like and you're just hauling ass you know so it's okay on that technical (laughs) side dude what's your uh what's your din setting (laughs) (laughs) um back when i used to compete i'd crank them all the way to 20 uh I think I'm. I mean, like, like for uh, ski base, dude. We're, yeah, what are we? <laughs> uh, just normal. Would you rather you know, have the them for the landing? So nice now. Um, yeah, and then well, we jump slider up now too. We used to do a lot of slider off, and then we realized that that will knock your skis off. That'll put you into like nine line twists if your if your weight's slightly off to one side. You know, your your skis come swinging underneath your body. Boom, that'll spin you right up. I've seen. Yeah, I think like nine line twists on a pretty good looking jump. Like you wouldn't expect anything to go wrong. Um, so that's when we started jumping slider up to kind of get your weight back underneath the parachute. And if you were, you know, slightly off at all, it would kind of goo you back underneath that thing before it cracked open. And it was a little more forgiving for that, for all those speeds involved as well. Right. Cause you're hauling ass. Totally. So after that first jump, <laughs> where did it go from there? Well, I went to Lauterbrunnen, of course, with my ski clothes and cause it was March, you know, and a good time to go post hole around on top of a bunch of sketchy cliffs. <laughs> so we did um, yeah, same ski trip. The We were supposed to be skiing and getting shots for this magazine. And JT's like, you know, there's some good skiing over in this area. And we pull into the Lauterbrunnen Valley. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I've seen this in the videos. Like, we are not skiing right now. JT just totally pulled a fast one on these guys. Um, so we started <laughs> jumping, jumping in the valley there. Um, and that was like my next seven jumps or something right at the end of that trip. Just post-holing across waist-deep snow, getting down to the edge, like, Getting to the edge was for sure more dangerous than jumping that that time of year. Um, yeah, so that, was that, that first trip to Europe. <laughs> so you guys were there with a professional production, and I'm assuming you guys had sponsors and everything like that. What yeah. I know that some companies think it's cool, and others are like, absolutely not. Base jumping is too fucking dangerous. We don't want to have anything to do with it. What has been your experience uh, you know, being a professional athlete and, and various sponsors and their attitude towards base jumping. You know, in most cases they are terrified of it and they want to keep it at a, at an arm's length. You know, they don't want to be directly involved. Maybe like if you can do the stunt on your own terms and then, you know, provide the footage after everything went well, you know, they, they want to, they want to keep it at a distance, you know, but there are the, there are the people that go through the proper avenues, get the insurance, uh, for like a real nice production and do it the proper way. And it's pretty cool to see that support and have it all have it all come together. So it sounds like it's just sort of hit or miss whether or not the company is going to be excited about it or not. And or is it your approach and being able to like you guys did with GoPro is like producing it on a silver platter with all the questions anticipated before they can even ask them. What is is that how it is? Yeah, I mean, so in that scenario with the with that shoot, you know, they they wanted nothing to do with it really. They're like almost 
didn't want to post the photos in the magazine and stuff like that. But, you know, other scenarios where it's like ahead of time, that project is, you know, for a ski base jump or for a base jump, you know, once if they're all in from the, the moment it was on the drawing board, you know, it's a whole different story. But if it's kind of like we're on a ski trip and you want to throw a ski base in here and there, and they're like, uh, I don't know. They're, you know, all pretty terrified about it. With good is reason. that reasonable? <laughs> Should they reason. be? <laughs> yeah, it's wild, man. It's, you know, I mean, skiing is wild on its own. So you're just going to start adding more stuff. Um, you're just going to stress those people out for sure. But it makes for a good shot. Yeah, and I know that there was like a pretty golden era in at least my like coming up in the uh, the sport where it seemed like there were a lot of companies sponsoring a lot of people. You know, Red Bull and GoPro were in full swing. There are a bunch of people putting logos on canopies and wingsuits. And uh, then it started to seem like, oh, man, like everyone started to get cold feet, you know. <laughs> like I was I was coming up with Adidas uh, when they were doing an outdoor brand. And then all of a sudden things started getting shut down. The company got shipped back to Germany. And they're like, okay, we don't want any part of this, any part of anything that looks dangerous. You know, Cliff Bar, you know, before that, like fires everybody. Like there was like a distinct time where it went from like, this is rad to like, whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah, I think it's when we lost a couple a couple legends, you know, like Shane and Dean and I remember that when Cliff Bar pulled off of anything that was jumping related and, and people were kind of freaking out about it. Like, hey, you guys are supposed to be this extreme company. Like, what's going on? And, um, yeah, I think when, when you lose some big legends like that, it changes the vibe. You know, these people that you think are immortal, essentially, you know, you're like, wait a second. Yeah. <laughs> do, you remember, do you remember when you went from feeling immortal to like, oh, shit, this sport has some real consequences? <laughs> I, you know, I think everyone goes through that same kind of bell curve or whatever you call it. You know, at first you're like terrified. You're like, this is insane. Why am I doing this nylon strings? And, and it's, it's shocking how quickly you get used to it. And you're like, oh, you just throw that thing and like, you're good to go. And like the parachute's pretty relatively easy to fly. And even if I don't land where I want to, as long as I flare really big, I'll be okay. And, and then you get up onto this, like not scared, you know, area for a while and then you see some wild stuff happen you have some close calls yourself and then you kind of get back down to that back to that same reality where you're like damn i just have a backpack on this is this is nuts and then you kind of stay there i think <laughs> all right let's talk close calls jesse because i've got a story i gotta uh, cross check with you oh boy um this is yeah yeah dude uh moab <laughs> wingsuit base jumping and uh, oh, yeah. I think you were with JVH, <laughs> and it was super gorgeous. Does that ring a bell? We were not at Super Gorgeous. We were at an undisclosed location, but it wasn't Super G. <laughs> okay, um, let's get it. Um, <laughs> we uh, we came. We had it was the first squirrel suits. I think it was like round one of squirrel suits, and they were great. And they started so fast, and were fresh off a Europe trip. And um, you know, it was like Scotty Bob and JVH, and. Uh, you know, a couple guys had suits on, you know, there's maybe three of us and we get to the spot. It looks huge. It's gorgeous, right? There's no, um, it's not super gorgeous, but it's gorgeous. <laughs> there's no, no trees for reference. There's no houses for reference. Everything just looks big out there, right? It's just rocks and, and it's sunny and it's lifting and it's gorgeous. And, um, um, you know, it just seemed like a great idea at the time. No one was really talking about the technicality of the jump or different aspects of the jump, whether it was the wall, the, the, mid-flight terrain the landing area like nothing was talked about at all you know we just assumed like hey we're all good like everyone's got this um i think scotty bob lit the fire no i lit the fire oh my gosh (laughs) 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 and uh i got out there i started the suit up and i i kind of like looked at my trajectory and i realized that i was gonna go below pole altitude for a portion of the jump and i hadn't mentally prepared for that it seems obvious now that that would be happening but um and so i just pitched at maybe six seconds or something like that and um nice soft on heading opening thankfully if it was a 180 i probably would have landed on the hill i wouldn't have had time to turn it around you know um and flew out and landed and i was like man like i did not even cross my mind that i was going to go below pole altitude on the jump you know um and those guys ended up jumping. Um, Scotty Bob made it look good, of course, like he always does. JVH came ripping out of there a little bit low, but pulled it off great. 
and then everybody else was slider off um and everything ended up fine but uh yeah that was a, a big learning experience for me and luckily you know just a little a slap on the wrist mentally to like hey you know figure out what you're actually doing here don't just assume that like a couple of people are doing it so you're going to do it or or that you know I don't know. It was weird that I didn't even think that I was going to be on terrain during that jump. It's just hindsight's so twenty twenty. But right. I don't know. I guess I made yeah. the right choice because I flew away. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, even just yeah. having the instinct to pull, right? I mean, that not everybody has that. And I mean, we know we all have friends that have just gone burning in and uh, didn't even bother pulling. Um, was it? Dude, tell us a little bit more in detail there at that moment. Like, did you have like that slow-mo sensation? Did you, uh, did you just immediately think, ah, go for the pilot shoot or, or, or what was yeah, going on? I just saw that sight picture. I just saw that sight picture and yeah, it was an instinct or something. It was like, it's time to pull. I didn't even, it wasn't an option to go into that terrain flying for me. It was like, if you get low, you're going to pull. That was kind of my mentality when that wasn't even an option for the jump, you know? Um, so I saw myself like coming in on the train and just pitched right away. And yeah, it was, of course, it's always the softest opening you ever have when you want it to be the hardest, fastest opening. And then you have like, you pull yeah. high and you want like, you're like, okay, here comes the softest opening ever. And it almost knocks your head off. But, so it was just the softest, most snivelly opening ever. And I'm just like, please Ugh. be on heading. I like, you know, I knew I was low. I knew if I had anything more than even a 90, I might've been like pretty close to landing on the, on the talus, you know? Um, so I was asking you about a hard lesson learned, like way back in the day and Matt brings it right into like a somewhat modern day, <laughs> right? Well, that, that was a long time ago. That was, that what, was first six, squirrel seven, suit. So that was what? Oh, okay. 2000... So 10 years ago. Yeah. Shit. 10? Yeah. But yeah, okay. So way over my head. Off, <laughs> off of that, like reading Jimmy's incident <clears throat> from earlier this year. Um, what do you make of it? I mean, it's just, there's just not a lot of margin, you know, you, all these jumps now, you have to have the right suit, you have to have the right weather, you have to do everything right. You're just stacking so many variables on yourself. Everyone's making the, you know, that those mini golf wingsuit jumps seem pretty standard, pretty nonchalant, but you're stacking so many variables um, that it's, you know, it's always going to be pretty wild and, and it has done well. It's done, it's done better than I have expected it to, honestly. Um, but it's some wild stuff, man. People are pushing it hard and, you know, I don't think anyone should be shocked when accidents happen on this type of jumping, just cause you have, you're just stacking so much stuff on yourself. Like it all has to go perfect and the weather has to be perfect, you know? Yeah. yeah. You know, before you jumped on, uh, Matt and I were talking and I was like, you know, man, the Wasatch jumping right now, it looks so amazing. There's so many cool jumps being opened and so many cool lines and stuff like that. But then I was also like, man, you know, like I have the benefit of having massive cliffs in my backyard that I can, I can go get tuned up on. Uh, it seems like you guys have nothing or super technical, um, which yeah, I mean, we have a we have a, a couple of big jumps that are three hours away, you know, but this stuff's all less than an hour. Um, it's interesting. So I I did one of the jumps around here, and then I did a big Europe trip, and I came back, and I was like, oh, man, I'm way more current now. I'm loving my Corvid, too. This thing's sweet. And I got back to that same jump, and I was more nervous after the trip than I was when I was uncurrent doing the short start um, before the trip, just because, you know, maybe it all how nice those big exits are, you know, you don't have to do everything perfect. And it really, yeah, I've been thinking about it, you know, is it, is it my cup of tea? Uh, cause I'm, I'm kind of at the point where I like, I want 90% fun, 10% like scared risk fear, you know, and, and when the, when that starts to change, you know, those, those short starts are, are definitely leveling it back out no matter how current you are, how good you are at starting the suit, how nice the suit is. Um, it's still, it's kind of changes that balance for me. And, um, I had, I had a lot more fun in Europe, you know, playing around on big jumps. Um, Felicia fish and I were out there just like doing back exits and barrel rolls and chasing each other around like little sky otters or something. And that type of jumping brings so much more fun <laughs> and joy to me than, than this, the gnarly short stuff, you know, it's, it's cool. And it's, it's kind of like with those aerials, you know, when I was hypercurrent at that stuff, it was like nothing else mattered to me. 
And, you know, I think that's how these guys like Hartman are, where it's just like, that's his, he's in his zone. He's in his element. That's his thing. Um, yeah, I'm still trying to weigh out if that's my cup of tea or not. How are you going to come to that conclusion? What are the things on either side of that balance sheet? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's, there's a line there, right? Where you're, you're still having fun and you're comfortable. And what is that? What is that altitude? That's kind of cool when people have that technology and they're doing the more accurate uh, mapping the terrain, using the fly sites, and you can get a better picture of of what that start is like if you're pushing over something, how tall it is, and then and then overlaying that with, with a similar jump that you enjoy. You know, is that going to be in that realm of the things I enjoy, or is that crossing over into that other, you know, a little bit lower, a little more serious, not quite so fun, um, and just making sure you do your homework on the jump before you get there, so you're not pressured into it. Um, by you did a big hike, the sun's about to go down. Now you realize, wait, this is way shorter than the last short jump I did. Um, cause yeah, you can do that homework now. You can look into it now and, and know, know that stuff before you get there. Yeah. It's gotta be fun, right? You gotta be having a good time. <laughs> yeah. What else? Yeah. What, what else are we here for? But I know yeah. it's like, I know I made a bit of a transition uh, after having kids. It was like a real uh, reprocessing of like my motivations. And like I alluded to that a little bit earlier about not wearing a camera and doing some solos and, and really like trying to look inward to see what my own motivations were. And um, we've got a lot of short start jumps here too. And um, yeah. This, the, the fear, you know, leads to thinking about consequences and when you have a lot to lose and people relying on you, uh, I, you know, I, I won't lie. It's like, dude, I, I like to jump short stuff and rip a sick line, but yeah, sometimes it's like feeling it's stressful, it's stressful. And then that pulls away from the fun and, uh, yeah, yeah. I like, I'd like to think that I'm switching, you know, a little more quality over quantity and and appreciating each jump a little bit more you know instead of you know i was out there you know cranking numbers i'd go to a cliff and bring a tarp and pack and jump it a bunch of times like a day at the bridge was you know 10 jumps every time if you did anything less than that you were just being lazy or you know um and you it's quickly it's crazy how quickly you lose that kind of I don't know how special each jump is. You know, you walk up to somebody like, how many jumps have you done today? And they don't know. That just seems shocking, especially like to an outside person. They're like, you don't know how many times you've jumped off this bridge today. Like shouldn't each one <laughs> be such a monumental thing that like, it's just ingrained in your memory forever. And you're like, no, actually, like, <laughs> I don't know. I have to write them down, I guess. <laughs> and that, that I, aspect I tell is people... just crazy. Like, Dude, yeah, right. Like, uh, man, I, t I tell people that I've got thousands of jumps and that I can't even remember half of them. And I'm like, well, just put that in perspective for a second. Like, that's like at least a thousand times that I've risked my life for something and I can't even remember the experience. How wild is that? Yeah, like you brought up that the wingsuit close call down near Moab and that wasn't even one of, I was kind of jotting down some notes and that wasn't even one of the close calls I had on the list. <laughs> like, but the second you sparked that memory, I was like, oh my gosh, yeah, that one was wild. <laughs> so you have a list? Tell us another one then. <laughs> oh, of course there's a What's list, What's the top man. of the list? <laughs> yeah, tell us. Come on, man. This is the good stuff. doing this for a while. There's a, there's a big list. Um, <laughs> no. Um, but the, the scariest one was up in Norway, man. Uh, that, so second trip to Europe, I went up there with my buddy Alex, and we started off in Chirag. We got our tracking suits. We're all stoked. They they showed up in the mail 15 minutes before we had to go to the airport, so we didn't skydive them, of course. But, you know, Shrog's big, so we're going to send it off the 3,000-footer with our tracking suits, and we're just loving it, right? Ooh. We're just hitting that sweet spot. We're ripping all the way out to the point, still pulling high, like so stoked on tracking. We get some Norwegian guys to write um, some names of some cliffs on a napkin. We take the ferry out. We take a train over. We take a bus up north in Norway and start jumping off the big stuff up there just like finding, following these names on a napkin, camping out and just, just the two of us. Like we didn't meet up with anybody up there. We were wow. just trying to figure it out and find the spots and ended up jumping a ton of good stuff, getting good weather. Um, we ended up all the way up at the cat hammer wall, hitchhiked way out there. And, um, it's like a 5,000 foot hike up. We sorted it out on our own. It was super muddy, just like ticks everywhere, uh, through the jungle up <laughs> into right. the, like, the yeah, there. it's a big hike. Um, 
awesome jump. We're like, let's do it again. Pack up. It's like another one, same day. Okay, let's do it, you know? And um, sure, we're fatigued by the time we get up there, not thinking super clearly, dehydrated, exhausted, you know, 10,000 feet in a day. Um, and we were just eating like junk because we didn't have any money, you know, just like a can of tuna and some pasta or something. Um, so we go running off that thing. And we're like, we're going to track to the water. We're like so stoked on tracking. We're ripping out there. And I like pass the road and I'm ripping out over the lake. And I'm like, this is awesome. And then I was like, oh, wait, I have to make it back to shore. And like pitch, you know, not thinking about just how high I was over the lake, not how far back I had to fly the canopy, you know. Um, ended up landing maybe 100 yards out in the water with a tracking suit on. And um, I spent 15 minutes in the water with a tracking suit on until I made Dang. it to shore uh, after hiking 5,000 feet twice that day. So, you know, freezing cold, helmet comes off. I'm, I pull the canopy and I got the tail pocket, so the canopy's not dragging me down at all. But that tracking suit is, was just like the biggest weight. It was like you could feel your arm move inside the suit and it would like hit the other side of the suit and then it would drag across. And then you go to swim the other way, like treading water, right? You, your hand comes across the inside of the suit, hits the other side and you're dragging across. Same thing's happening with your legs. You just feel like this thing's just trying to take you under. Um, and my mouth is just barely out of the water. My ears are underwater. I'm just barely keeping my mouth above the water. Um, and my buddy Alex ditches his suit, rips all the way out to me. He unzips one of my legs and I'm able to actually like make progress towards the shore. Um, but I couldn't like stop treading water for half a second to unzip a leg because it was just going to like, it felt like an anchor. It was just ready to take me to the bottom. Um, so yeah, it's, we watched, we reviewed it on the footage afterwards and it was 15 minutes in the water after hiking 10 grand, just it completely exhausted, Damn. ears underwater, just like every breath I was taking in and out, there was like a little bit of water, like kind of pushing around and it was, it was way too long to, um, to think about drowning for sure. Like those other instances, you know, are all just a moment, just this brief, like, Whoa, that was close. I was close to that tree. I pulled low this or that. And then it's over with, you know, you almost don't even have time to realize it, but, but yeah, 15 minutes felt like a long time. <laughs> Eternity of thinking you might die. God. Yeah. Don't recommend so it. Scary. So, um, yeah. needless to say, I, so... I respect water a little bit more now <laughs> and have sense. Ah. Yeah. yeah, me too. I landed in the water in Norway with the wingsuit and I didn't spend a lot of time in the water, but I instantly gained respect because it was, yeah, like you said, an anchor. Like, yeah, it's just uh, freezing cold, obviously, even mm -hmm. in the summer. And and then the weight of that suit and the canopy and just being in it and everything. Oh, man. Yeah, I just I never want to have that uh, that happen again. Yeah, and I think the tracking suit's almost worse in a sense than the wingsuit. Like, you, as long as you get Way your legs worse. out of either one, um, just whether it's a tracking suit or a wingsuit, just to get the legs out, unzip the legs, un unvelcro the wrists, unzip your arms, like, whole different story. But if you um, if you let that thing fill up before you kind of have everything undone, it's uh, get serious quick. Yeah, dude, way worse because you have to be moving the thing with the inlets on it too. So like it all has to fill up if you're going to like make progress to the water versus the wingsuit. My like closest incident was also a water landing, but I was in a wingsuit in Europe. And uh, man, I just got lucky. I didn't even really know that this was going to happen because I was unzipped. As soon as I planted in the water, the inlets were facing down and the suit just became a huge raft. It was the easiest experience ever. Yeah. Like, so, I mean, yeah, tracking suit, terrifying. You're like inside this like little, you know, ZP thing that's not allowing you to make good progress because, you know, you're just pushing water and then all of a sudden it's like filling with water too. And oh my God, it's terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> Don't recommend it for anybody. <laughs> so on the, flip, on the flip side of all that, um, you know, we have all three of us been for jumping for, for a while now. And, uh, you know, because we love it. What are some of the jumps that are the most memorable and what are the ones that make you smile thinking back to, to those times? I mean, that, that same trip was one of the best of my life for sure, because it was all so new, you know, we felt like cowboys out there, like, especially when we we're just out there on our own, um, and doing those, those monster tracking jumps were just like so much reward for that hike, you know? Um, sounds like such an like, adventure too. Like just like in the unknown, like a map of, you know, 
with a napkin guiding you. It was like, that's just so, so wild. Yeah, we had no clue. Even how we were getting back out of there, we had we waited. We ended up staying there two days longer because we there was no cars going by. Like that that valley was just empty that time of year for some reason, and like finally ended up hitchhiking in the back of a truck out of there. Like two days after we expected to leave, um, just because it was so remote and just no plan, just you know, going for it. But yeah, that um, that jump was epic. We jumped all over Norway, went down to to Switzerland, jumped a bunch there, jumped the mushroom and stuff like that. Um, and then down into Italy and, and, and jumped Rento. And it was just such an epic, huge trip. You know, I think there was like a hundred jumps on that one trip and it was like first time with the tracking suit and it was pretty life-changing for sure. It definitely got me extra, extra hooked to the whole thing. Um, but other, other epic trips, like down to Angel Falls in Venezuela, I uh, went down there with Mike Wilson for a, for a film shoot and got to jump the waterfall twice. So stunning, stunning waterfall amazing jump beautiful village that you stay in like everything there just felt like it was out of a dream that was another huge one um went up to to baffin island with jt and timmy dutton and did uh some ski base jumping up there said uh i think we spent 10 days on the ice up there and that was you know another one where you're just like this place is real oh my gosh it's like this the polar sun spire does exist you're standing underneath it you know to see the scale <laughs> wow. of the stuff there and we were supposed to have a helicopter that whole that whole time, and it got stuck in bad weather. But we had perfect weather, so we ended up hiking everything. We were skiing like five thousand foot couloirs, and then um, and doing some base jumps. And the grand finale was a three way ski base with the cutaway skis um, off a huge cliff into like ditch the skis, cut them away, and then start tracking. So that was that trip was unreal. So cool. I remember seeing some of the images from that trip going like just so spectacular. Yeah, that place is wild for sure. I mean, there's that's kind of I mean, obviously one of the cool things about base jumping, I would have never gone to these locations, you know. I wouldn't have been over in Thailand hanging out on the little Tonsai beach, jumping off the stuff in Malaysia, walking around that city, like I don't know, the 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 adventures that go along with it, right? Obviously, the journey, the part of it, the people you meet, all that stuff is just epic. The people you meet too, and that's like a big deal, right? Like I, you know, we're all involved in different sports, um, you know, climbing and mountain biking and skiing and all that good stuff. There's something different too, right? About the bond that we create with the people that we meet along the way on these adventures, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. And I don't, I don't know if it's like the seriousness of the activity as a, as a large part of it, or just the uniqueness of the locations, right? You're you're basically going to these places where every single one of them should be this like preserved natural park, right? You're just going to like visiting every wonder of the world, you know, those, those are the places that, that bring base jumpers. So you're just the most epic place with these people just searching for that same, you know, joy of flight and epic experience. And it all, it all culminates into something pretty special. I, you know, I have a theory that um, the danger is a big part of it. You know, like, of course, the beauty and the fun and all that stuff is having it. But there's something about the danger and the, the being rolling around with a small band of friends that, like, taps into our true human nature of, like, how we evolved as humans in these little tribal situations, you know, fighting against saber-toothed tigers and whatnot that, like, having that sense of danger around us and surviving as a group, I think just tickles something that's just innate within all of us that really like we can relate to on a primal level. You ever thought much about this, Matt? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think you're right on the mark for me. Uh, A lot of people have proposed that base jumping is also born of like this um, ancient desire to be hunters, you know, and to like, put ourselves in situations where we have to engage with all these extra senses in order to survive. I definitely feel like we were like the people that were supposed to go into battle or go hunting or do like the wild, like we need this one person to go do this wild thing for the tribe and like save everybody. It's like, that's deep within each one of us to be that guy. Like I'll go for it. Like I got this. (laughs) Yeah. Like uh, definitely like the military was something that I was attracted to. And then like I then was like, well, wait a second. I don't want to fight for these reasons, you know, nothing but respect for people that do, but it was, I I just didn't call to me that way. And then, uh, being called to adventure sports, it was like, oh no, like that's it. Hmm. Jesse, is there a piece of media 
that you've created over the years that you would uh, put at the top of the list? We just talked about like favorite jumps, but do you have a, a favorite piece of um, production that you were a part of? Um, the, the Kavu boys put together a video called line of sight. And it, I think it, it kind of encompasses the whole adventure along with the jumps. You know, there's so much stuff out there that's just like cool jumping content, but they, um, you know, were able to get the whole vibe of the trip and, and the whole rest of the experience in a really cool way. So I think that's probably my favorite actually. Was that you guys in the nice. Dolomites? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was a great It's so day. fun. We're like it hanging out by the day. lake, eating gelato, having pizza. Like half the time is just us like skipping around and having fun in the mountains. And then there's jumping sprinkled in there and, and some and interesting interviews as well that kind of tap into a little more what's going on behind the jumps and stuff. So yeah, that one stands out by far. Cool. Nice. We'll include that in the notes, including your packing video. If people want to get in touch with you, uh, where should they reach out? Um, probably Instagram, Jesse Hall Ski Base is the easiest if anybody needs some coaching or some advice or any questions about anything really. And as we like bring this thing to a close, is there anything that you want to touch on that we haven't? I mean, we've kind of gone through a lot of your career and a lot of the uh, aspects that are unique to, you know, Jesse Hall, but uh, we don't know what's on your mind. Is there anything that uh, you want to touch on? I mean... There's a, there's a lot of advice out there, right? And things to do properly and the steps to take this and that, but really like trust that little feeling inside of you. Trust that, like that gut instinct, um, and make sure you have that strong desire to jump every single jump. Even if the weather's perfect, you have the perfect gear. It's the best crew ever. Like something inside you, you know, it's just like, I'm going to, I'll take photos on this one and just chill, you know, um, trust that little feeling, you know, that's pretty much every time that I've had something go wrong or somebody else has had a close call or something like that. Like, everybody's little spidey sense is going off, you know? Um, so that's, that's the, that's the easiest thing to always kind of check back in with, you know, take all this advice from numbers and different things like that. And just listen to that little voice in your head, <laughs> have that strong desire. Nice. I think we can all agree with that. So laser range finders and fly sight have <laughs> their place, but your intuition may be the best indicator. I like yeah. that. Yeah. For some, some, you are, you know, what's going on for some reason, you know, what's going on, um, deep within there somewhere. Yeah. Well, thanks Jesse. We appreciate that. Absolutely. Yeah. This is super you, cool. It's like, it's like getting to go on a road trip with someone or sit around the campfire, you know, you read the great book of base and it's information, but I like what you guys are doing. I think it's super cool because yeah, not everybody gets to sit around the campfire with us or, or go on a long road trip and just hear all the all the stuff. So I like what you guys are doing. Keep, keep it up for sure. Thanks man. And come back Thanks, anytime. Man. Well, it's people like you that make it possible. Awesome. We hope you enjoyed this episode of exit point. Shout out to Mark Stockwell, our co-producer and editor. If you see him on the street, give him a big high five. And thank him for everything he's done. See you on the next one.